Welcome to Defragmenting, a podcast of Cairn University, promoting biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. As evidenced by the multitude of tributes offered following his death, the pastoral ministry, speaking, writing, and example of the late Dr. Timothy Keller helped countless people better know, love, and obey Jesus. Even those who didn't share his faith have offered sincere expressions of gratitude and admiration for his life. In this episode, Colin Hansen, Vice President of Content and Editor for the Gospel Coalition and Executive Director of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, joins Dr. Keith Plummer to talk about his book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. They discuss its genesis and what we can learn from the people and experiences that shaped Tim Keller's life and ministry. Colin explains the vision of the Keller Center and shares how knowing and working with Tim has affected his following Christ. Let's join their conversation now. On May 19, 2023, Dr. Timothy Keller's faith became sight as his body succumbed to the ravages of stage 4 pancreatic cancer that was diagnosed in May of 2020. My guest is someone who enjoyed a long history of interacting with Tim Keller as a colleague and friend. Late last year, knowing that his book on Keller was soon to be published, I asked Colin Hansen, if he would join me to talk about it, and I'm grateful that he accepted the invitation. Colin is the Vice President and Editor-in-Chief for the Gospel Coalition and the host of the Gospel Bound podcast. He's a fellow alumnus of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, from which he received his MDiv, and prior to that, he earned his undergraduate degree in journalism and history from Northwestern University. Colin is an adjunct professor of cultural apologetics and co-chair of the advisory board at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. He's the executive director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and the author of the book we're going to talk about today, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation, published by Zondervan. Colin, I really appreciate you making time and your schedule to come on the podcast. Welcome. Glad to do it, Keith. Glad to do it. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book where the idea came from, how you went about doing the research, why you thought it was a valuable contribution. Well, you know, Keith, we we got the news in mid-2020 about Tim's diagnosis with pancreatic cancer. And for a number of years before that, I'd had a thought of somebody needs to be writing a biography of Tim Keller. And I'd even recommended it to a number of different people, especially folks who were in New York City. And it just occurred to me that nobody had been working on that. And so I talked with a publisher, Zondervan Reflective, and I'd said, you know, I think you guys should propose this to Tim. And I said, even if he goes with a different publisher, and even if I'm not the writer, and even if I don't have anything to do with the project going forward, I just think somebody needs to talk to Tim about these things before he dies. And the particular angle that I thought was really interesting was, and this is what I had proposed, was not looking at Tim's influence, considerable, but clearly, as we've seen in recent days, we really couldn't know that until you had seen him, you know, his life lived out. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you couldn't do that. But I thought he loves to talk about the people and ideas and books and events that have influenced him. So I just said, I would propose that he would collaborate on a project like that. Like I said, if it's a different publisher, if it's a different writer, that's fine. I just know it's the kind of project that I'd be interested in. 
I think a lot of other people would be interested in, and then I think would bless the the broader church. So that's how it came about there in mid 2020, and I started working on it in January of 2021. Great. And how did you begin the process of research? I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff in the the book. What was your method? Yeah, that's a great question, Keith. If you told me tomorrow, Keith, that I was going to be writing a biography of another you know, figure like, let's take Don Carson as an example, mm-hmm. right? So one of our professors and, and, um, and co-founder with Tim of the gospel coalition, I would have a lot harder time with Don, even though I've known him for longer than I knew Tim, but because I'm not as familiar with as much of his works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that in most of what Tim had written came out between 2000 and published, I should say not written, but published was between 2008 and 2022. So in my job at the Gospel Coalition, in my studies, and my own ministry, I've really been able to track a lot of that and a lot, a lot of other key messages. So a lot was already in my head in terms of what I thought generally I would focus on, and also just in conversations with Tim. We had discussed these things quite a bit. So for example, I I don't know where I would have come across the story about his younger brother who died of AIDS in 1990, complications related to AIDS in 1998. Um, but I knew that from somewhere along the way, just knowing him. But the main method was was twofold. One was to go back through everything he'd preached and written to see who he was referring to and what he was referring to. And then the other thing was to go back and interview key figures who had known him at different stages. So if you were talking to, say, somebody like his sister, Sharon Johnson, you'd be able to understand a lot more about his home and also different personality and character traits of Tim's that predated his conversion in 1970. So for the first 20, 19 years of his life, um, that was a really important part of the book. And then I, you talked to Bruce Henderson. Bruce is really the person, best man at the Keller's wedding that R.C. Sproul officiated. He was the person who saw Tim's transformation most clearly, his conversion in there. So I was looking at people who not only could speak to what they saw in Tim, but also what they they saw in the environment that produced Tim, hence the influences, right? So that was the methodology that I went through there with the books and and with the sermons, but the interviews were probably the most important part by far. Pursuing footnotes to me is like uh, hunting for treasure. Some of my greatest finds have been just perusing footnotes, endnotes, especially people who have had a big influence on my thinking. I want to see what has influenced them. You say towards the end of the book that to understand Keller is to read his book's footnotes where he shows the work of processing and wrestling with sources. And I think you did a very good job of doing this. The The book really chronicles not only the the author's the reading that he did, which he was a voracious reader, but the relationships. And one of the people that you refer to, you describe as the person who would become the most formative intellectual and spiritual influence on Tim Keller's life. And I'm sure that um, this could be a book in itself, an episode in itself, but that <laughs> that is Kathy Keller. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Just could give us like one or two ways that that is so. What leads you to describe her as such? You know, one level, Keith, you might might think it's just stereotypical. Of course, a spouse is going to be that major influence, but that is not 
always the case spiritually or especially in some ways intellectually. And that could go either direction, of course. But in this case, Tim was very clear in his book, The Reason for God in 2008, that Kathy was the primary influence on him spiritually and intellectually, in part because she introduced him to the other influences. Mm. So he didn't learn about C.S. Lewis from her, but she was much deeper and much more uh, she knew of Lewis. Well, she actually corresponded with Lewis of all things, um, but she knew him much better. And she's the one who introduced through her sister, who was a student with Tim at Bucknell, reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Jonathan Edwards, Tim did not grow up. He, he grew up, um, his mother baptized him Catholic, and then she baptized him Lutheran. And then he switched to a kind of um, fundamentalist Arminian um, evangelical congregational church in Eastern Pennsylvania. And so he did not grow up Reformed at all. Uh, so a lot of the Reformed influence came from Kathy as well, because in Pittsburgh at the time, there was a major, uh, when she was growing up, he was on the eastern end of the state, Allentown, she was in, in Pittsburgh area. There was a pretty significant Reformed revival in the area led by people like John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul. So, and and then, then, of course, in those formative years, Tim and Kathy were best friends as students at Gordon Conwell, part of the Edmund P. Clowney fan club that they founded together. So in all those ways, in those especially pivotal years, there's no doubt about it that Tim learned a ton and leaned on Kathy Christie well before she'd become Kathy Keller. Mm. There was another woman who had a very big influence on him, Barbara Boyd. Tell us a little bit about who she was, what impact she had on him. So one of the things about the book is that if you actually look out there, Keith, at at all this stuff, you can find it. You can find it in Varsity Christian Fellowship, a tribute to Barbara Boyd and what Tim had said about her. But no one else has before has compiled them all in one place and to explain how they fit together. So, so all these things, if you knew Barbara Boyd and her Bible and Life conferences and gone through them in the 1960s or 70s, that would be a familiar thing, but she's largely been lost to history. So one of the things that I did is I went back through the Wheaton College archives on InterVarsity, found some interviews that she'd done. She was the first female staff member of InterVarsity here in North America. And basically what she did is she taught inductive Bible study called Bible and Life. And um, that was where Tim just learned basically through biblical observation how to understand and how to interpret the text. Part of it was just pretty simple. It was, you know, I'll give you three minutes, five minutes, something like that to look at the text. And the students are kind of, you know, scratching their scratching their heads like, I don't know what else I'm supposed to find here. And then she stops and says, uh, now you're going to do that for 30 minutes. <laughs> you're just going to stare at the text. What do you observe? What do you see? So just that close observation. She was also um, pretty significant in terms of lordship as a component of our of our salvation. Well, I should say just Lord the lordship of the lordship of the Lord in our lives, okay? Our faithful obedience to him and submission to him in all things. This is a pattern that would then extend to another major female influence on Tim's life in Elizabeth Elliot. Mm -hmm. Barbara Boyd would talk, she would have this illustration about the lordship of essentially how great and big God is and when he asks us to do something, we do it. So that's that's Barbara Boyd and just a formidable figure. And I hope a lot of people get to know her through this book. When people think of Tim Keller, understandably, we think of him as the New York City pastor, but he really got his start in a small church in the South in Hopewell, Virginia. 
And he says that that was probably the most formative for him in terms of pastoral ministry. The nine years he spent there in a congregation that was not of the same background as him, most of them not having completed high school. So this wasn't an environment in which he was dealing with a crowd that was really intellectually inclined, but it seems like he really cut his teeth on what it meant to shepherd in that church, that he gained a lot about an education about what it means to pastor. Tell us a little bit about the schedule that he kept there and what is it that influenced him in terms of his outlook on pastoral ministry that came from that that context? Thank you. This is a great question. So two things stand out to me about those years in in Hopewell. One of them in terms of the schedule, it was brutal. He preached 1,500 messages in three years. Okay. So back then you're preaching Sunday morning, you're preaching a different message Sunday night, and you're preaching a different message on Wednesday. Uh, so if nothing else, it's going to help you to uh, to learn to teach and to preach on your feet and mm-hmm. and to really cut down on your preparation time, but still have to produce something insightful. Uh, so that was the one major thing of, of simply, it's just like anything else in life, you really need repetitions. He got 1,500 sermon reps in that place. The, the second thing that he learned a lot is the different contexts in which people will, will trust a pastoral authority. So one of the things that he often said was that in Hopewell, people needed to know that you loved them before they were inclined to listen to you. In New York, people had to listen to you before they would allow you to love them. And I think it's a good way of explaining that as, as pastors, it doesn't, and other church leaders, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to just drop into any context and do the exact same thing. One of the things that Tim had seen do work really well at Bucknell in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, as well as at Gordon-Conwell in uh, you know North Shore, Boston, were these academic, inductive Bible studies, a lot, a lot of, a lot, and then also they did a lot of biblical counseling type worksheets. Those things did not work in congreg- in a congregation where only two people had college degrees and they were both elementary school teachers. Um, you had a number of people, their their education ended at about sixth grade. Um, you still have people in that congregation whose fathers had fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. I mean, that's that's a different environment. It's not the one that we typically would ever associate with Tim. But uh, even though it it taught him a lot of really, really, really good things about ministry, at some level, he would have had to learn those things somewhere, just happened to have been there. The second thing that I want to make sure people hear, though, about the Hopewell years is that he basically burned out. I mean, that was from 25 to 34, essentially. They had three boys. All three of their boys were born at that time. He's doing all that. He's doing all that work. And at the same time, he's counseling like three different couples in marriage crisis at any given time. That was overwhelming to him. It was actually so overwhelming then when he went to Westminster, he, he in part replaced Ed Clowney, his mentor, when he retired, was teaching some of his courses. Uh, Tim had two part-time jobs that were actually both full-time jobs, and he said, it still felt like a sabbatical for me compared to pastoral ministry. So even though I think there's a lot that we can learn from Tim's experience at Hopewell, I think we also need to be clear about 
what it was actually like for him as an energetic 20 something and 30 something it was still it was still too much for him for example he would certainly it's probably one of the major reasons that he started the redeemer counseling network um, or helped to start that through their church in new york because um he really needed some christian counselors to help it with some of that he it shouldn't have all gone through the pastor. And keep in mind, that church was only about 100 people when he got there, closer to 300 when he left, but it's not like it was some sort of megachurch. Right. You you mentioned the, the fact that uh, some of these people, they have a heritage from the Civil War. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book is the presence of racist sentiment in that area that Keller was interacting with. Right. Tell us a little bit about that and how that was influential in some of his thinking about addressing matters of of race from a Christian perspective. Yeah, so Keith, three different stages for Tim when it comes to race relations. The first of them, it was really interesting. It stood out to me, especially after I was doing an interview with Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is one year older than Tim and had grown up in Atlanta. And racism... Uh, especially opposition to the civil rights movement and and support for segregation was a major reason why he had problems with the faith, had problems with his family, had problems with his church. Tim, even in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and going to Bucknell, a liberal arts school in central Pennsylvania, had some of the same problems. There was a sense in which by the time he gets to Bucknell, and this is after the King's assassination, of course. In fact, Tim started as a freshman the same year that King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a major thing he had to overcome of, wait a minute, my my family, my church, my community lied to me about civil rights and segregation and Dr. King. So that was the first stage. The second stage then was at, uh, was at Gordon-Conwell where he interacted with a more diverse student body. And um, and one student in particular was very clear about challenging what I think were a kind of default white notions of cultural normativity, I think is the best way to put it, of, of uh, Tim and Kathy making some arguments and him saying, you do realize that those are your own culturally situated expectations. And they really are they're not Christian assumptions by any means. And so it was the first time that Tim and Kathy were able to kind of see back in the mid or early to mid 1970s of, oh, this is another form that racism takes, not just overt you know antipathy, but also just cultural assumptions that your yours is the superior culture in there. Then he goes to Hopewell. And what he finds in Hopewell is that, um, I mean, I, I should be clear about something that I don't think anybody's asked me about yet with the book, but um, one thing that made a really big difference for him is that there had been a pastor named Bill Hill, and from the 1940s on, Bill Hill had actually been a staunch opponent of different forms of segregation, also of Christian nationalism. I mean, Keith, this is at a time when everybody had fought in World War II. I mean, he's still saying you can't bring a flag-draped casket for a funeral into my church. Hmm. I mean, and and when they were starting a Christian school, he forced it in the 1940s and 50s to be integrated in Virginia. So there was a precedent there for other people having gone ahead of Tim. And one of the things that Tim found is that when he preached 
you know, the, the basic gospel of sin and grace. And he talked about all the things that we would know him for just his, his ability to, to penetrate with grace by the Holy spirit to the heart. What he found then is that confession of racial prejudice and racism would come forward, even from leaders in Mm. the church. So I wouldn't say it was something that at that time, Tim went out of his way to preach about, but it became an application of the transforming power of grace to people who had been steeped in a racist environment. One of the things I do, I mean, I'm a civil war buff. So Hopewell is just right in the middle of so much of the most significant fighting in the civil war, as well as the the loving decision that finally overturned bans on interracial marriage in the United Mm. States, which was only in the 1970s, if if I'm not mistaken. So I wanted to really set that backdrop to understand that it truly would have been something of a shock for this Yankee to be going south into, into Virginia, especially because also, and this is, I, maybe it goes without saying, but I, I feel the need to point it out, that the PCA was a largely Southern denomination, especially at that time, which is why he did go south, mm-hmm. because there weren't churches in the Northeast. So he was entering into a Southern denomination by theological conviction, but didn't understand all the different cultural dynamics. But he, he got an education in it, no doubt. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, you um, mentioned in the book, one of the men in the church who, as he was coming to understand the the gospel, previously had seen it just as a moral obligation, came to Tim and said, you know, I've been a racist all my life. Right. And, and yeah. as you were saying, that wasn't because he was preaching about it, but this man was being transformed by yeah. a vision of what the gospel is about. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that, for better or worse, Keith, That's one of the reasons that a lot of people have criticized Tim in recent years is that they thought he should have been more on the nose with a number of different issues, that there should have been direct application as opposed to gospel implication of discipleship. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if people are right or wrong about that. I just wanted to give that example in the book as a way of Tim didn't expect that his gospel message was going to be disconnected from life. Mm-hmm. It was intended to root out sin and to, and to precipitate sanctification. And it had done that in his actual pastoral ministry, and that was an example. Mm. Well, you cover so, so many different topics, so many influences. I was really interested, uh, for the sake of our listeners, you and I both are involved in theological education, right? preparation for pastoral ministry, and I wanted to ask you on certain areas, what are some takeaways that we should have in mind with respect to particularly theological preparation, formation intellectually and spiritually, Mm -hmm. not just in terms of um, content, but also relational aspects. So I wanted to take a few subjects and just have you respond with one or two influences on Tim's thought and practice in these areas as it relates to church life and ministry. So one area that you spend a good deal on is his view of apologetics as a church-based activity and um, the influences, and there were several on his thinking about what it meant to reach an unbelieving society and through the church. What are one or two influences in that regard? You know, what's interesting there, Keith, is that I think this might be a good example of how Tim 
synthesized a couple different influences because his view of evangelism and apologetics, I mean, one of them very clearly is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like off the top of our head, Martin Lloyd-Jones and the, and Tim would talk about this all the time that as we're preaching, we are edifying and evangelizing at the same time. It's, it's the basic concept that the gospel is not just for non-Christians to tip them into the kingdom. The gospel is the sustaining power of transformation for Christians unto glory mm-hmm. and eternity. So that basic premise undergirds just about everything there. Then, of course, you could also then add R.C. Sproul, just the power of effective, logical teaching and an ability to be able to answer any kind of questions, not because you have all the knowledge, but in part, it's just to show people that you're not afraid of those questions. So the lineage there for Tim was Ligonier Valley Studies Center with R.C. Sproul, and then R.C. Sproul was inspired by Francis Schaeffer and Labrie. Okay, so, but the difference there, of course, is that Schaeffer and Sproul were not pastors, at least not at that time, and they weren't doing this out of the church. Uh, So what Tim was doing is he was kind of combining aspects of Labrie in the parachurch with aspects of young life, where communities of Christians and non-Christians would come together, and then he kind of put on top of that Ed Clowney's view of the church (laughs) and the importance of the church and trying to do that in an ecclesial environment, especially with Lloyd-Jones as his model. So Lloyd-Jones would have something where he would alternate morning and evening services. One was more evangelistic, one was more toward Christians, but Tim just tried to do that in, in both. I mean, as Lloyd-Jones did as well, as much as possible, one of the, but one of the key takeaways for Lloyd-Jones and for Tim is that when you're answering questions that non-Christians have, you're actually answering questions for Christians. Mm-hmm. But so just by, by doing that, non-Christians are saying, oh, you're actually paying attention to the kind of objections that we have. And Christians are thinking, well, yeah, I secretly had that question too, but I was afraid to ask anybody right. about it. So Lloyd-Jones is probably, I mean, I don't know that anybody would think of Lloyd-Jones exactly as an apologetic influence in that sense. Tim was certainly more influenced by C.S. Lewis, another non-pastor, when it came to apologetics. But in terms of combining apologetics with proclamation, kind of put those two together, and that's what Tim tried to do. Yeah, I I was really interested in that lineage, as you described it, from Schaefer to Sproul to Keller. And one of the influences that came about through that was Schaefer was— helpful to Sproul in terms of thinking about the the study center. Right. And then Sproul has these gab fests where yeah. he is yeah. in, interacting with people about their questions, which Keller sought to emulate somehow in the context of Redeemer when it first started in terms of having the Q&A session after the services for those who wanted to ask further questions. And in fact, our friend Michael Keller... Uh, of course, one of Tim and Kathy's sons, who was the pastor at Redeemer Lincoln Square, did that same thing when I was recently in New York. So mm-hmm. I got to stay and listen. And afterward, Michael said, "God, how, how do you think I? How do you think I did?" How, and so we, we talked through how he answered some of the questions and different things like that. But yeah, it's it's something that you can still see today in New York. The only reason Tim stopped it was because, well, he was preaching so many other services at different campuses at the time. But second, after 2008, 
so many people who wanted to talk to him were Christians who wanted them to autograph his books. Mm. That really wasn't the purpose of what he was trying to do with the Q and A's. So just didn't get a chance to talk to as many people that way. But um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's one of the, one of the coolest things that he did. And, and um, his friends, Graham and Lori Howell were participating in those gab fests at Hopewell when Tim did them as a pastor. One of the things I love though, <laughs> their story <laughs> with, with Tim is that, if you showed up and you had questions, that was great. He tried to answer your questions, but if you didn't have questions, he had about a hundred of them printed out and you could just use mm. one of those. <laughs> <laughs> just pick one from the list. <laughs> well, related to this idea of evangelism and apologetics is that of contextualization. And that is something for which he has become uh, very well known. Right. You say in the book that critics and supporters alike have noticed this emphasis. The critics said that he did too much by way of uh, trying to translate, but yet he showed the way to be faithful to the past without getting stuck in it. Uh, who are some of the influences on his thinking about that aspect of ministry, contextualizing? The influence there is clearly Harvey Kahn and the years that he spent at, at Westminster Seminary. I think of Harvey Kahn pretty similarly to Leslie Newmigan in terms of as contemporaries, the influence of missiology in their experience as, as missionaries in, in, in this case, in Korea and in India, and coming back to the West and realizing how much the Western church needed to adapt, because essentially it was both over and under contextualized in different ways. So over contextualization, we often associate with liberalism. It's kind of a syncretism. And then under contextualization, we, we typically associate with fundamentalism, this, this, this thought that there's one time and place that we can baptize as being normative for Christianity all over the place. The major way that this came to influence Tim, I think you can see in his leadership of basically gospel ministries in cities. So we take it for granted now, but one of the key insights that Tim made and adopted from Harvey and others was that you could have a church in New York City that's actually more similar to a church in Sydney, Australia than it would be to a church in suburban New York. That's contextualization, is understanding your environment. Contextualization is not about, this is one confusion I often have to clear up for people, it's not about making the gospel more palatable for people. It's about clarifying the offense of the gospel to get to it so that people are directly encountering Jesus himself and not merely our sort of enculturated forms. I should clarify that the other major influence before Harvey Kahn on him was Richard Loveless. And this is a, a Gordon Conwell. And again, I think, Keith, that we completely take this for granted now, but hopefully through this book, people will be able to see why these shifts were so significant. Loveless was writing his works like Dynamics of Spiritual Life at a time when the Jesus movement was, was growing in popularity. And it seems odd for us now to think there was a real question at the time, could you have long hair? Could you pray extemporaneously? Could you use guitars in church and still be a Christian? Or would you have to put on a suit? Would you have to cut your hair? And would you have to like organ music? Loveless was one of the key figures of saying that the gospel needs to be disenculturated from those assumptions so that it can be unleashed for real transformation in cultures. And so Tim was himself, even though we may not think of him that way, he was a product of the Jesus movement. 
And Richard Lovelace was one of the key figures to help him to understand, oh, yes, what I've experienced here can become a part of the dynamic of a church because Tim's experiences in churches were not very positive growing up. So so Clowney and Lovelace and others helped him to contextualize what he'd learned primarily in the parachurch, but to be able to bring that to bear in a church as a leader through contextualization. So I know I covered a lot of ground there, but what I was hoping to do in the book is help people to see that a lot of things that we simply take for granted now were transformations that Tim Keller lived and in many ways was a huge contributor to to changing. So, I mean, just pointing out that I, I guess it's easier for us to imagine, you know, sort of like uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa and others as a Jesus movement. But I mean, Tim converts in 1970 around Vietnam protests. I mean, it's mm-hmm. exactly the Jesus movement. Oh, you know, he has often taken heat for what people call the third wayism. But it seems that to be most charitable, what he is doing is he's expecting to find elements of common grace at work as he is seeking to make a connection with the unbeliever. But he is also taking sin seriously and therefore also expecting, anticipating that there is going to be an area where there's a necessary confrontation as well. Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. So again, this you're exactly right, Keith, in terms of the transformations that we simply take for granted that we, he would have been a, a big part of. So for example, he would have said that learning from Khan and others, that every culture has elements of common grace in it. Every culture accepts and rejects Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that Tim would often get in trouble for, you rightly point out, he would do this with things like economic systems. So now I don't think this is very controversial, but it's been very controversial. He would say things like, you know, socialism reflects some aspects of Christianity and rejects others. Capitalism recognizes some aspects of Christianity, but rejects others. I don't think that should be very controversial. And he would say the work of Christian discernment is to be able to see where Christianity cuts through both. Mm. Let's try to get the best of both worlds instead of you know, instead of, um, you know, just one system over another. Now, people would say that and say, oh, my goodness, what are you doing? Are you a communist? Are you a socialist? No, that was not the case at all. He wasn't saying you have to always take 50-50. Right. he He would simply say, hey, you know what? Every criticism of socialism, of capitalism, is not necessarily wrong. There may be some criticisms of it that are correct. And this is the thing about Tim, is this is how he viewed criticism of himself. Mm. He talked about this all the time. Somebody could hate Tim Keller, but he would say, I bet you might be right about a couple things, and I should at least take it to heart and think about it and take it before the Lord. Mm. And so I think, I, I actually, this is just occurring to me now, Keith. I wonder if his generosity and capacity of of spirit and of curiosity might have been why people were so confused by him because he was unusually so Mm. unusually curious and unusually willing to entertain other ideas, not because he believed in them, but because he believed you could learn from anything. So he might say something like, well, you know, there are some things about a critique of capitalism that we can learn from. 
And most of us just, we have to think dichotomously. And so you're thinking, oh my goodness, that, that means you're not a capitalist. If you're not a capitalist, you must be a communist. If you're a communist, you're an atheist. Oh my goodness. But he's saying, no, 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 actually socialism is like, it's a heretical offshoot of Christianity. It doesn't make any sense apart from Christianity. And it was an effort to try to mitigate against these problems with capitalism, but it created all these other problems, especially when it was shorn of any Christian, of any Christian morality and accountability. And it went horribly wrong, as we've seen in the 20th century. But yeah, without getting too far into the weeds here, I think generally speaking, his willingness to say you can learn from other sides, I think maybe people took him to say that meant you had to completely endorse the other side. He was saying, even if there's 5% that we can learn from the other side to critique what is our side, that's still worth it because mm -hmm. it, it prevents you from being completely beholden to some system. And there's no system that's going to perfectly encapsulate, not, not politically or economically or even church, that's going to perfectly encapsulate everything about Jesus. So I guess maybe my last point in this very long answer is to say he had a similar attitude about churches. His attitude was, of course, he's a Presbyterian, and he would happily have argued with you about why he was a Presbyterian. But he was willing to say, but I can learn from Pentecostals. Mm -hmm. I can learn from them. And like, wait a minute, are you, are you then endorsing their views? No. But he might be saying Pentecostals are better than Presbyterians at some things, and therefore, perhaps it's the case that not everybody is going to have to become a Presbyterian in order for the Lord to reach New York City or our city for Christ. Yeah. And in our age in which we're experiencing such oversimplification and polarization, right. that is intolerable. Yes. But it, it seems what I have appreciated about him is that he recognized that there is a complexity to creation and revelation that he anticipated encountering as he is dealing with other views. But I, I think what happens is people encounter that and conclude this must be motivated by a desire to placate. Yeah, I think, Keith, you said it as well as I think anybody <laughs> ever has. We are doing the same thing that you're always told, or we're tempted to do the same thing that we're always told not to do, which is to assume motives. Mm -hmm. And when people look at a ministry that's reformed in New York City, that is by many worldly standards successful, or even, Keith, let's look at all of the amazing tributes to Tim from the New Yorker, from the Atlantic. I mean, how many people have feature really positive feature stories as evangelical Christians in the New Yorker, two of them in the Atlantic, at least three of them in the New York Times, and on and on and on and on in all these different places. You can say, wait a minute, you can't be successful in the worldly terms and still be an orthodox, biblical, conservative, reformed, whatever else you want to say, Christian. Therefore, he must have done something, and he must have done it, he must have done something to placate out of a motivation of wanting to be popular mm -hmm. with those people. But there are so many leaps in that assumption right there. I don't think they're warranted. And I think the simple thing you need to come back to is, well, wait a minute. 
maybe there actually was something to what he was doing. Maybe it is possible to be deeply, deeply convicted, but also deeply curious to be evangelistic and apologetic in terms of defending the faith, but also to be generous and also to have a high view of common grace, doing everything in pursuit of the great commission alongside the great commandment. Maybe that's actually viable. And maybe that never goes out of style because it's based on a basic biblical approach of being in but not of the world. That's what I would argue, at least. (laughs) Well, as I was reading your book, I thought on several occasions of Blaise Pascal. Yeah. And one of the reasons I did was because of something that he wrote in Ponce, and it's this. Authors who always refer to their words as my book, my commentary, my history, sound like solid citizens with their own property who are always talking about my house. Mm. They would be better off to say our book, our commentary, our history, seeing that there is usually more of other people's property in it than their own. Wow, that's good. Okay. And your emphasis on Tim's synthesizing yeah. And his his readiness to acknowledge, I'm not coming up with this from, you know, just out of the, the blue. I, I'm indebted to yeah. these other thinkers. Yeah. But yet, while he synthesized, he also tweaked, as you said. Yeah. And he expounded and expanded on the thoughts that were stimulated by these other people. That was one of the things that just really, really struck me about him into something that, you know, I would hope to have more in my own life. Yeah, that's good. Well, Keith, the story in my book, in our book, (laughs) 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 you dropped that quote on me at the end of the interview. Um, No, the the story in there that was amazing, and I really do, um, I was thinking about this just in light of the you know, memorial service coming up and everything. And, and just thinking about the people that I want to see and say, thank you that I never even got to see in person who helped me with this book. And in many ways, I'm just inspired by that quote. I love Pascal. Um, I'm just inspired by that quote because in many ways, this is Tim's book. It's my book, but it's also, it's Louise Midwood's book. Mm. One of Tim and Kathy's best friends. And I think about Louise because she had maybe the best story of the entire book, or the most telling story. She said, um, in our classes with Tim, we'd be there in the lecture, but then we'd go back to his dorm room afterward. He'd redo the whole lecture, and it would somehow be simultaneously faithful to everything we just learned, but also insightful in different and new ways. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought, well, you just handed me... Tim Keller. <laughs> that is who he was. That is what he did. And I think there was a genuine humility mixed with personality. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham is the first person I ever wrote about in a book. And Billy and Tim are similar in a lot of ways in terms of their godliness, their humility, but they're not similar at all in their personality. Billy was at ease as the center of attention. He wanted to rub shoulders publicly with the rich and the famous and the political and the powerful. Tim was never comfortable that way. He was the drum major in the marching band in the sense of he just was not going to be the most popular kid. 
in school. Mm-hmm. So I think at some level, it's genuine humility. It's a it's a, a unique uh, gifting for synthesis that the rest of us can try to emulate. It's also a little bit of personality that it deflects away from attention on him. Mm-hmm. And I don't want the book necessarily to to drive attention toward Tim, because the the goal of the book was to draw attention toward the Lord's work and all these other people that hopefully we'll go back and get to learn more from. But I do have an, a, another personal hope that people will realize that Tim's contributions were more significant than maybe he allowed them to see because of his willing to simply credit others. So for example, I, I want to be specific on this. And I know I'm still doing these long answers, but no, that's fine. Uh, you got, got me going with good questions, Keith. Um, Ed Clowney is a good example here. So Tim would say, essentially, I'm indebted to Ed Clowney for my interpretation of the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. Similarly, he would talk about Jack Miller. Jack Miller's um, emphasis on being gospel-centered. Okay. Yes. Tim learned a lot from Jack and from Ed. But if you went back and you talked to Jack or Ed, or if you went back and read their works, you'd realize it's not the same as what he said. Not because he ch- he changed it. It's that he found new adaptations and new levels of insight, and he synthesized it through what was typically a more sociological lens that Tim did. So Jack and Ed would often focus more either theologically or psychologically and Tim would often find more sociological implications for it. And so that's what you'd be getting a faithful representation of Jack or of Ed, but with Tim Keller's special twist mm-hmm. on it. And so, I, but I think that's a commendable way of both being indebted and also deflecting, but it does help you to kind of miss like, oh, this guy was just ripping off everybody else. No, that definitely wasn't what, <laughs> what Tim was doing if you know the actual sources. Right. Well, I, we've got to wind down soon, but I did want to get uh, some other questions in. I wanted to yeah. give you an opportunity to tell the listening audience a little bit about what your hopes and aspirations yeah. are for the Keller Center for yeah. Cultural Apologetics, of which you're the executive director. Say a few words about that. Well, we're delighted to have such good fellows working with us like you, Keith. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> there, that was a one of the things that Tim did was help me uh, before he died was to work with me on the list of fellows that we would that we would invite. And the basic idea here is that um, Tim left an unfinished project. Uh, it's kind of twofold. One of them was he left behind a generation that was going to have to work out some things in an increasingly secular world that he had not figured out himself. I mean, this is the same same Tim here. He's being overly modest. The fact is right now, and, and for the foreseeable future, the best thing people can do is go back through the things that Tim has written, even just in recent years, whether it's How to Reach the West Again or his Future of the American Church series, or even going back to Making Sense of God. I don't know how many years it could be you know, before we finally fully appreciate what he did in Making Sense of God. At the same time, he recognized that as he got older and the culture was changing more quickly, we would have to develop new ways to be faithful in a modern setting, remaining orthodox, even in this changing world. And so the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics was his way 
of formalizing that network of people in the academy and in the church, especially who were working on that project mm. from a variety of, of standpoints, just like we've experienced, Keith, from working on everything from continuing education in preaching to new discipleship and evangelism courses to statements on the ethics of artificial intelligence to training and theological reflection on sexuality, all the way toward video and audio series of engaging on common ground with non-Christians, even as we evangelize. All sorts of different things there that were broadly inspired by by Tim. So the, the Keller Center does not perpetuate Tim Keller's legacy specifically, but it is a way of continuing to work under the inspiration of the example he set, especially in doing this work of a cultural apologetics, which he would say is simply what Christians have been doing all along, especially in the ministry of people like Augustine. Mm -hmm. So our friend Chris Watkin, his work, Biblical Critical Theory, that was the kind of thing that Tim was so proud of because he thought we need new works like this, or I would think about our friend, another fellow at the Keller Center, Andrew Wilson's work on 1776. Mm -hmm. We need more deep reflection on cultural transformation. And we need to be contextualizing the gospel for those changes. I mean, it's sad for me, Keith, just to think I was reading through, you know, a new book on generations from an author that Tim would have uh, would have read, and it's just it's just it's going to hit me for a long time that I would have talked with Tim about that book. Mm. You know, I would have said, I would have said, Tim, what did you think about that book? Because I know he would have read it. Right. Is that Jean um, Twenge's? Yeah, Jean Twenge. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Her and I was like, I know Tim would have read this, mm -hmm. but um, Keith, you and I'll just have to read it together and talk about it, and you have to give me some advice on what I can do if I can get her on my podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it, it's on my list. I do. That is one I want to read. Seriously, read it. I mean, especially for you and me both working in theological education. I think I'm a, I'm an elder millennial. And it's really helpful for me to see some of the differences with Gen Z. Mm. Um, not that it's typical of every single person. That's, of course, you know, not the point. But even just what you and I are doing right here, even the fact that we're having this conversation is what the Keller Center is intended to promote, is to help people to continue to think and work and act and organize at that level. Mm -hmm. um, there just isn't enough of it. We just need more of it. Yeah. Well, here's the final question I wanted to ask. You have written this book about the spiritual and intellectual formation of Timothy Keller, the influences upon him. I know that there are probably many, there are certainly many, but with respect to your own spiritual and intellectual formation, what role did Tim play through his life? Oh, yeah. So, you know what's interesting, Keith? Hardly anybody would expect this of Tim, but he was not the kind of person who was mentored by others. People didn't really see, other than Ed Clowney, people didn't see a lot of promise in Tim for most of his, his young life. Hmm. So R.C. Sproul, you know, for people who remember R.C., you can tell he and Tim are very different personalities, right? You know, like R.C., man, you could just you could just go out and have a really good time with R.C. and talk about sports and anything like that, and he would do that. That wasn't Tim. 
Um, you'd have a great conversation, but you'd be talking about books. You wouldn't be talking <laughs> about sports. And so RC just, that wasn't really a great fit. You know, Tim ended with high honors, highest honors at, at Gordon-Conwell, but nobody, no professor ever selected him hmm. to be a teaching assistant or anything like that. And so as I as I look back, Tim influenced me in two different ways and in two different stages. The first stage was largely in the same way that anybody else can be influenced by Tim. It's simply reading his books. It's simply listening to his sermons. It's just the way he helped me to love Jesus. Mm. And I don't think it's um I don't think it's any bad thing, Keith, for us to be able to admit that some writers click with us and some don't. Mm-hmm. Tim was a writer who clicked and a, and a preacher who clicked with me. I have a feeling, you know, the old um, David Brooks, one of one of his friends would would write about the influence of these kind of you know, bourgeois bohemians or these bobos or these upwardly mobile folks. Like Tim had those folks pegged because mm-hmm. that was Tim. And I have so much of that kind of striver mentality in me mm-hmm. that he has helped me find the grace of God amidst my striving personality. So that was that level. The second level, though, was just was more recent in terms of the direct professional and personal uh, encouragement and help that he gave me. And of course, that came largely in the context of the book and of the launching of the center. And um, I think that God gave all of us a gift in these last three years of Tim with the diagnosis because he underwent what I would describe as a kind of spiritual, like an individual revival. He was rejuvenated by all the time he got to spend with Kathy. Mm -hmm. He was relieved of a lot of institutional burdens that he carried, and he was able to simply focus on people and especially the next generation. And it was fairly random you had no idea when you'd get a call from him or an email from him, or he would respond to this, or he wouldn't respond to that. But it just meant the world to you when your phone would light up and it was Tim Keller calling. And it it's not because Tim was always the most personable, you know, like he's a, he's a New Yorker from Eastern Pennsylvania. He's not, it he wasn't exactly studied in the arts of, uh, you know, of personal communication, but, but there was just a depth of character and um and that i think keith just to to be transparent here i've worked for so long in ministry leadership and you get disappointed a lot mm-hmm. um you disappoint other people yourself a lot and it's not that tim never disappointed it's that what he believed what he advocated was true in his own life Mm. Not perfectly, but he never claimed that that was what we were striving toward was moral perfection on this side, but, um, you know, but a deeper appreciation, understanding a depth of love for God. So that's what he meant to me was both distantly, but also individually. And then bottom line is that I, I just have no idea where I would be professionally or personally without Tim. Mm. And, uh, I wish the Lord had given us a lot more time, but look what the Lord gave us with the time that we had. Yes. Oh, what a blessing. So thanks for letting me answer that question, Keith. Oh, I was glad to, to give you that opportunity. 
One of the things that has struck me with all the tributes that have come out uh, following his death, I have, I am one who has certainly been impacted by his intellectual productivity and understanding of the gospel and so forth. But what has really struck me in the aftermath of uh, his going to be with the Lord is the tributes of people who have said how heard they felt by him and all of the things he did behind the scenes to encourage, to, um, you know, tell those coming behind, press on, that video message that he left for Redeemer, you know, dost thou seek great things for thyself, seek them not. And it it is refreshing to find someone who has been in the spotlight, did not seek it, and did not disappoint with revelations from people who knew him well afterwards to say, well, that was a facade. I am very motivated by, by his example and what the the testimonies of those who did know him well, you included, to make character much more of of an emphasis and not just to be satisfied with the content, as good as it is, but to to see that wedding. And one of the points that you bring out in the book is that for him, spiritual formation and intellectual development were wed. Yeah. That they couldn't be separated. Mm, so true. And uh, that is a good reminder to us all. The book is Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation, published by Zondervan, authored by Colin Hansen. I am grateful for it. Encourage people to read it, as you said, not just for knowledge about Tim Keller, but about a wealth of biblical, theological, cultural content that can help us to live more faithfully in the age that God has placed us. So Colin, thank you so much for your your time and your labor in this in this book. Thank you, Keith. It's just been a really good time to be able to reflect with you. 